Good morning, everybody. So good to see you this morning. Um, real quick plug, if you're a young adult, I would love to see you at our young adult retreat, August 28th through 30th. We're really getting really excited about it. Love to see you there. And then if you attend, you get a half off men's and women's retreat, like, like Chad said. And also a special welcome to the sports camp visitors. Uh, we're so glad you're here. Today, we've got a doozy for you. Um, we are looking through the book of Romans. We're looking at Romans chapter 9. And Romans chapter 9 may be one of the most difficult chapters for a Christian to understand in all the Bible. Now, it's not difficult like confusing, but I think it's difficult like for us to accept, receive, and believe. Um, But if you follow with me this morning, I think if you get what we're talking about in Romans chapter 9, it will produce a level of joy and peace that you have not experienced without understanding this living truth. So this living truth we are talking about today is the doctrine of election, or the doctrine of predestination, or the doctrine of what I'll use, God's choice. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, Romans chapter 9, I encourage you, look at the text with us, because, hey, I could be skipping over difficult verses, right? You want to catch me on that. So it's good to have the verses before you. But if you don't have either one, we've got the, the text on the screen. So the doctrine of election or predestination or God's sovereign choice is this. Election is an act of God before creation, which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. This means that it is God who chooses who will be saved. We don't choose God, but God chooses us, irrespective of any good works, family history, intellect, nothing. It's all because of God's mercy that he chooses whom he saves. And as uh, Augustine, um, a fourth century church father says, God does not choose us because we believe, but that we may believe. Let me tell you a little bit. Uh, When I entered college, I went to a a Christian school, I did not believe this living truth. I rejected it. I thought people who believe this must be either mean or arrogant, probably both. That's what I thought. But as I began to look at the scriptures, pray, study what God has in places like Romans 9, in places like Ephesians chapter 1 and the end of Romans chapter 8, this doctrine began to soak into my heart. This living truth that we see in Scripture began to kind of sink in. And during that time, I also struggled with anxiety, like anxiety that would come on, like claustrophobia kind of thing. And in understanding this doctrine, I began to experience a sense of freedom that I had never sensed, and I would not have apart from this doctrine. But many of us in this room are going to be like, I don't know about that. But let, let, let me say this. This doctrine, it's, it's not barbecue sauce. It's a marinade. It's like a, it's like a five-day marinade, okay? So my challenge is this. Follow along with me, 
Look what Scripture has. Look what God has for us. And just marinate on some of the things that we're talking about this morning. But before we start, let me pray. Let me pray for myself. And also, as we're praying, pray for your heart that will be soft to soak up some of the marinade that is this living truth. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are, you're wise. Your plans are far beyond my plan, far beyond anyone's plan. Lord, there are certain things that's hard for us to understand. But Lord, you're patient and long-suffering with us. And Lord, as we look at, at, at Romans chapter 9, will you give me, give me a, a Holy Spirit wisdom and how to speak these difficult things so that after we mine this living truth, we can have the diamonds that you have given us in here. So anything, Lord, that I say that should not be said, just call that away, delete that from memory. But Lord, may your, the, the truth of your word, your holy scriptures stick in our hearts. And we love you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right. So up until this point, we talked about how Israel is the chosen people. God chose Israel specially from all the other nations with which to bless all the world. When he chose Abraham, God said, you are going to be a blessing. You're going to, you're going to be blessed in order to be a blessing. Well, we see that the chosen one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, came to provide salvation or to provide us a way to be right with God through, through belief in Jesus Christ. But that promised Messiah, the, cho the, the chosen one, Jesus Christ, was disbelieved and was rejected by his people Israel. The, those that he, the line that he came through and the parentage that he came through, those people, the Jews, rejected Jesus. So the question is, did God's promises fail? Did he renege on his promise? And that's the question we jump in in verse 6. Did, God promises, did God's promises fail? Look with me, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac... Shall your, shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. All right, let's break this down a little bit. So here, Scripture is telling us, that it doesn't matter who your parentage is, your ethnicity, your circumstance, your background. You don't have to be born a Jew in order to be saved, in order to be right with God. 
Because it's always been the case that it's not the children of the flesh who are children of the promise, but the children who are children by faith. It's by faith that we become saved. We become right with God. And what scripture is telling us is that's always been the case. It's always been the case that if you're born a Jew or you're born an American, it doesn't mean you're automatically a follower of God, being right with God. It gives us two examples, two sets of brothers, Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau. Before we, before we explain these brothers, you have to understand, in this culture, if you were firstborn, who here is a firstborn male? Okay, who here is not a firstborn? It's the rest of us. And you kind of know that, like, even in our day, sometimes mom and dad treat the firstborn a little better, right? Like, I think, like, we can kind of understand that. Back in the day, the firstborn... Some, some heads are shaking out there. Like, back in the day, the firstborn wasn't like, it, the firstborn got everything. Well, excuse me, firstborn male. If you're a female, nope, nothing. Firstborn, <laughs> firstborn male got the land, got all the inheritance, all the inheritance, and got to be the leader of the family. And if you were a secondborn, hopefully you had a good relationship with the firstborn son because he could, he could basically work his way, work your way out of the will. So here we have these two brothers, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. And we see that Abraham was the man who God gave the promise to, promise that through your family, all the world will be blessed. And you're going to have a son through Sarah. Well, Sarah and Abraham got a little impatient. Sarah gave her maid to Abraham to sleep with. And through that relationship, Ishmael was born. But Ishmael was not the son of the promise. We see 15 years later that Abraham and Sarah had a son together, and his name is Isaac. And it's not the firstborn from Abraham, but rather the chosen one, the son of the promise, Isaac, with which the nation of Israel and ultimately Jesus Christ would come. So it's not firstborn that determines, not your birth order that determines being right with God. Second, group of, of brothers were actually twins in the same womb. I, Isaac, to be Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. They were in the womb. And Esau was born first. He was the firstborn. He was the one that the world said should have everything. He should be the privileged one. He should be the chosen one. Rather, God said that even when they were in the womb, he said the, young, the older will serve the younger. So it was Jacob who was the son of the promise and not Esau. Why is that? Verse 11, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. And he gives us an explanatory phrase to show that salvation is not because of works, but because of him who calls. See, even from the beginning, it's not doing the, doing the right thing that makes you right with God. And we see, like, if you ever see the story of Jacob and Esau, like, I would much rather be a friend of Esau, who's, like, big, strong, and hairy, and he hunts, than Jacob, who's, like, you know, a mama's boy and weak and a swindler. So what he's saying is, it doesn't matter how good you are, your parentage, what ethnicity you are, no. 
You are saved simply by God's gracious and loving choice. You are right with God, not because you earn up enough points to cash it in for salvation. Rather, you're right with God because he chooses you and he loves you. That's the purpose of these two examples. And this is a wonderful thing. This is a wonderful thing, especially for us in 21st century America, because this, this teaching, this living truth, turns entitlement and privilege upside down. You know, there's been a lot of talk in our world, uh, especially in the public sphere and politics, about entitlement and privilege. You got two groups. One group says, hey, I was born in a situation or in a neighborhood where no matter how hard I try, I can't succeed. The decks are stacked against me. My circumstance are such that my life is already plotted before me. Nothing I could do. So the people who are born into privilege should give me what they have. You've got the other side. Say, I've worked really hard for what I have. I've done the right thing. I've been really wise. I've been really good. So people who do not have what I have should work harder, should be smarter, should pull their self up by their bootstraps. They aren't entitled to what I have. You know, I can find myself, I see myself in both of those groups. I think I've worked really hard for what I have and where I'm at. But, you know, if I was born in a different family or maybe my parents were had, you know, more money, I, I would be doing better. I think we can all find ourselves in that discourse. But this living truth of God's choice turns that completely upside down. What it does, it says, t- tells one group, hey, God chose to put you in the neighborhood, in the town, in the school district that you're at. And he's given you an opportunity to do a good job and do the best that you have with the situations that you find yourself in. All of life is a gift. So we honor God with what we have. But we all, that this living truth says to the other side, it's not because you're awesome. It's not because you're great. It's because God has given you in his love what you've been given. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose your abilities. But it's God who graciously gives you what you have. So you use your privilege. You lever it to serve those who have not been given the privilege that you have. You see, the gospel says in the living truth that God chooses those who are saved, turns both of those, both of those sides, whether in privilege or entitlement, upside down, and it ultimately turns the hearts of these people toward one another. Because it's not about us. It's about God who has given it to us. So let's love one another. Let's leverage what we have to bring people up and be grateful for those even who have more than us. Why? Because it's not about us. It's about God. And that discourse is not going to happen in politics, but it's only going to happen in a community who's centered around the good news of Jesus Christ. So this living truth that it is God's choice who saves is wonderful because it turns entitlement and privilege upside down. Well, if you had your Bibles, uh, you would notice that I stopped at verse 12 and did not read verse 13. And verse 13 are one of two very difficult verses. 
So let's look, with, look at this verse specifically. Verse 13 says, As it is written, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. What does this mean? You know, it's like, like wait, wait, what, what do you mean? Jacob I loved, okay, yeah. Esau I hated? I thought, I thought God loved everybody. I, I, how does this work? Well, this is the only time in the New Testament that God's ever said to hate anybody. And this is actually a reference to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. We see from the Old Testament that Jacob is renamed Israel, and it's through his 12 sons that the 12 tribes of Israel come to be. And we see Esau, he's later named Edom, and he produces a group of people called the Edomites, who are sworn enemies of the nation of Israel. So in the original context here in Malachi, it's talking, yes, about, the, about Jacob and Esau, but more so about the two nations, Israel and Edom. And commentators go back and forth, and, you know, you get some disagreement, but generally what they say is when we understand this, it should be understood not so much as uh, love, hate, but more as love as, because he, he accepted the nation of Israel and hate as he rejected the nation of Edom. So he, God chose the nation of Israel to be the nation with which the chosen Messiah would come, but he rejected the Edomites. They were not his chosen people. They were not those who would be, provi- who would be provided the Messiah. So he, in a way, not, love, not so much love hated, but accepted, but then rejected. That still, it still makes us deal with why he did that. But I think if we step back for a second, when we look at the purpose of why God chose Jacob and chose Israel, he chose Israel so that Jesus would come. Ultimately, through the line of Israel, Jesus comes, the chosen one, to die and rise again. Why? Not so that the Jews can be saved, but so that the whole world may be saved. You see, even in the rejection of the nation of Edom, we see the acceptance of the nation of Israel align so that ultimately the descendants of the Edomites would one day be saved. In God's rejection, we see the acceptance of those who are, you would think, least likely to be followers of Jesus. So even in this situation, we see God's rejection of Esau is actually a way of acceptance for Esau's family. Let's keep going. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Look with me back at verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So what God is telling us here, it's not human will, being smart, being clever, do, you know, thinking the right things, being the, the most religious person. And it's not on exertion, which literally means running. It's not on our white knuckle, doing the right thing, religious activity. Rather, being right with God, being chosen for salvation depends on God who has mercy. Because we, if we looked at the section before, neither Jacob or Esau or Ishmael or Isaac, none of them deserved mercy. But it was simply out of God's love that he extends mercy. And this is a wonderful thing. Why? Be, because, like we talked last week, that we are in God's grasp. See, if we volunteer for God's grasp, we say, all right, God, I'm going to, I find you, I've chosen you, I'm going to be in God's grasp. Well, can't we just as easily, in our worst moment, step outside of God's grasp? Can't we just as easily say, oh, no, this week, Lord, I'm, I'm in your grasp. I'm... And then back to that sin, back to that struggle, step right out of God's grasp. No, this living truth that it is God's choice shows us that it's God who writes the warranty. It's God who gives the guarantee, not us. See, we can write void the warranty. I've done that a few times. But if it's God who says, no, no, I've chosen you, you are in my grasp, then we can't wiggle out of it. And that's a beautiful thing. Because I don't know about you, maybe you guys are more holy than I, but there are moments, dark moments, when I think, Lord, how can you love me? Even though the things I think and say and do, even to those closest to me. But even in that, he says, hey, Josh, it's not because of how awesome you are. You go to church five times a day. Right? It's because I love you. That's beautiful. That gives me hope and peace. You know, but still, <laughs> even now, I still struggle with this sometimes. Like, I, I understand, yes, God, you saved me by grace, but don't have like a little bit to contribute. Like, don't I just have like a little bit of good works, you know? Like, aren't I like just like kind of like awesome, just a little bit, right? Isn't it kind of like a little salt, you know, just a little bit? And I think as Americans, we often feel that way. Like the legends in our culture are often those who started with nothing, picked themselves up by the bootstraps and made an empire. You know, that, those are the legends we have in our American culture. The thing is, Americans, it's difficult for us to, to let this soak into our heart. But I think that it, it, it's the, di the difference between us having even a teeny, teeny, teeny bit of our works versus it being completely grace. I think it's the difference between having a teeny, teeny, teeny crack in your basement and having no crack in your basement, right? No crack in your basement, you can finish it off, live in the basement, little crack in your basement means when it rains, there's water, and there's mold, and you're just hoping the mold doesn't creep up the house, right? And I think often our own good works, we just try to, all, God, just a little bit. 
It's the crack in our foundation that lets in the doubt and it lets in the insecurity that ultimately produces mold in our soul to the point where we grasp by our our will or our exertion, trying to cling hold of salvation. We really need, need to rest in God. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. <laughs> Amen. For he cannot deny himself. He wrote the warranty. You cannot avoid it. All right, well, let's, let's, let's turn now to verse 19 through 23. And these next verses are what uh, pastor and theologian John Piper, uh, uh, I read many of his books, says, in all the Bible, there is no more weighty or ultimate or difficult words. But I invite you to come along. Let's look at some of these things. Let's look at the difficultness in the face and see if God's face doesn't shine through. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. How does this work out? How does God's choice in our free will or autonomy or responsibility, how, how did those things interact? How can God still be the one, he who chooses and at the same time we are responsible? Well, this is where we get to the end of our tether. You see, in order for God to show us how this all works, he would have to show us all of history and all of time and every motive and emotion and thought Indeed, he would have to download that into our brains in order to show us how it all works. And here I am with my three and a half inch floppy saying, download it, God, I'm ready. Right, I'm a teaspoon asking the ocean to fit inside me. Right, I'm a flashlight asking the sun, hey, give me a shot at lighting the world. I'm a toddler who, who speaks to the fighter pilot and says, hey, let me, let me give that a little ride. We are incapable. We don't have the capacity to understand how this all works. I did a whole, I studied it through graduate school and then postgraduate school, I did an entire class on this doctrine. And at the end of it, I was like, you know, I don't know. It's beyond the pale. Right? It's beyond the pale. It's beyond the curve of our sight. It's on the other side of the earth. 
We can't see it, but God tells us it's there. But ultimately, the argument we see here that God gives us for why he has ordained and chosen vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath are not ultimately an argument of capacity, but one of ability. He doesn't say, Josh, you can't comprehend it. He says, Josh, I'm God. I do whatever I want. I don't have to run my plans by you. And that's what God wants for us in our hearts from this topic. Not to say, God, fill me in, but to say, God, I trust you. I, I, don't, I, don't, know, I don't know. It's beyond the pale, but I trust you. And I will trust you even in the places that I don't understand. You see, what I cling to in this, and like studying my brains out and like, you know, if you look in my office, it's just like a sea of books, trying to, trying to grapple with this. What I cling to is that after everything is known, Jesus Christ comes again, sets everything to right, and we worship him in truth. After everything is known, I will be infinitely thankful that it is as God desires it to be. And my hope is that that will be the sentiment of your heart as well. But this is not a bitter pill to swallow. This is not the fine print, right? When we get to eternity, there's no elephant in the room. We're like, are we going to ask him about that verse? You know, it, when we get there and our limitations are stripped away, this will be another aspect where we worship and praise God and say, Thank you that it is as you designed it and desired it to be. So how can we have pride? <laughs> how can I have, still have pride in my good works or my, you know, my progeny? Or... This beautiful, wonderful living truth should just, should just melt away our pride. It should just peel away at the pride we have in our hearts. See, the summary statement that scripture gives us starts in verse 30, kind of draw, ties it all in. It says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles, who are the, the unchosen, the descendants of Ishmael and Esau, who did not have the covenants or the promises, the law or the worship, who are outsiders, who are undeserving, who are us, but the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness Righteousness has attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, the chosen, the insiders, the moral, the earners, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it was based on works. No matter what we do, you, you don't have to earn up and punch the card to cash in your life for salvation. 
You don't have to white knuckle it to the end so that God will choose and save you. No, rather, you just have to have faith and trust in his son, Jesus. That's a beautiful thing because I know my limitations. And I think if we look at our own heart, we know our limitations. That even when we're at our best, apart from Christ, our heart's at our worst because it's festering with pride. But we're at our lowest. God is at his best. And that's what we can trust in him. But let me bring us back to that time when I was wrestling through this in college and early graduate school. You know, deep down, this living truth of God's choice, I had two hurdles, two issues that I had to get over in order for me to really love this. First is, I wanted just a little credit, <laughs> just a little bit, just a footnote at the end of the book, right? And honestly, I was a little offended that all my good works and my morality was not at least a little bit credited to my account. While I was reading and praying through Romans 9, I got to verse 32, and a light bulb went on, and I just laughed at myself because I was doing the same thing that the Pharisees were doing to Jesus. Verse 20, 32 says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. See, I wanted just a little bit credit and what was happening is the rock of Jesus Christ, who I should stand upon and build my life around, which is secure and will hold me like an anchor, I was stumbling over because I had my little porridge of self-righteousness that I thought was worthy of Jesus Christ. And the second thing I had to get over, and maybe it's something that's going on in your heart right now, is I just feel like it's not fair. Like, isn't this all just supposed to be fair? And as I turned from my own face, as I looked at my own life, wanting things to be fair for me, I feel like the Holy Spirit pointed my face, not to my own face, but to the face of Jesus Christ. And I tell you what's not fair? The gospel is not fair. God the Son who had all the privilege and all the riches and all the entitlement, voluntarily took on flesh to be born in a barn to a peasant family, to live a perfect life, to be despised, spit at, tortured, tacked on a cross naked, to be strained, not only physically, to the point with his heavenly father, he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you rejected me? He was put in a tomb, raised three days later, so that we can look at the cross and say, we are now accepted by God, not rejected. That's not fair. But that's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And in chapter 10, it says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Am I chosen? Am I not chosen? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How do I know I'm chosen? Do you call on the name of the Lord Jesus? Do you recognize it's Jesus, not my good works, but it's Jesus on the cross. Through his rejection, I'm accepted. Then you are a child of mercy, a child of the promise. You can rest firm and secure. You're in his grip. You're standing on his rock and he will not let you be carried away even at your worst. And I don't know about you, but that's wonderful. That is wonderful. Something that I hope marinates down in your soul because it brings me a level of peace that I've never known. Oh, I didn't get into this school. Man, I, I, I'm still unemployed. You know, I, I don't know how I'm going to retire, but God chose you. He loves you. He's not going to be like, well, you didn't save enough for retirement. You're messed. He will provide trust in him. So my challenge for you is, is this. It, for some of us, I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's still a difficult thing. Let it marinate. Just let it marinate in there. Read Ephesians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 9. Use some of the resources we're going to have on our, our uh, Facebook page on places that kind of break down these verses and just marinate on it and pray, God, show me the living truth that comes out of this difficult, often confusing chunk of scripture. Guys, I, I thank you. I feel like you guys are engaged. You were present with me. I appreciate that it, it wasn't just like carte blanche, like this is, this is crazy. Because I really do think that once we understand this, joy and peace just begin to gush forth. So uh, let me pray as we close. Oh, God, you, Lord, your, your ways truly are higher than our ways. We don't understand how it all works. But, God, we want to trust you more. We want to recognize that it's not our own doing but on you, that you choose us, you save us. Lord, help us to marinate in that fact. Lord, help us remind that our, our good deeds are as filthy rags to you. You don't want, us, you don't want those filthy rags because you want to clothe us, clothe us with righteousness. So what would you do that? The people here in us, the community of faith that know you, Lord, may we be more humble. Lord, convict us when we are prideful about being saved. Lord, people, people who don't know you, we didn't know you. We can't expect them to live a life that honors you because they don't know you. Lord, encourage, distill in our hearts that we need to grab hold of Live New 1024 and share this message with the gospel because all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. So help us. Melt that pride away from us. Melt the privilege and entitlement away from our hearts, Father. Lord, we want people to see you. Help us to get out of the way so we can point to you, Father. That can only happen through your spirit. Would you help us, Lord, to do that? And we, um, we, just, we, we, we thank you for your son. And praise in his name. Amen. Amen.